From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Earlier this month, the Health Minister Greg Hunt announced plans to establish a pilot clinic which would make Australia the second country to legalise mitochondrial donation, also known as three-person IVF. If successful, this technology could dramatically reduce the amount of babies born with mitochondrial disease, a debilitating condition which in the more severe cases proves fatal. Today, Bianca O'Grady on the technology which could reduce the risk of this life-limiting and tragic genetic disease. Bianca, let's start at the very beginning. What is mitochondrial disease and how prevalent is it? So mitochondrial disease refers to a group of genetic diseases that affects um, the genes in the mitochondria, which are these little kind of organelles inside the cell, inside every cell that are really essential because they're the kind of energy powerhouse of the cell. And there's a huge number of different variations of the mitochondrial disease and some are much more severe than others. So, and they're generally fairly rare. So between one in 5,000 to one in 10,000 are at risk of developing a serious illness, which equates to around one in 200 Australians are estimated to carry a mitochondrial genetic defect. And around one child is born every week with a severe form of the disease. So there are milder forms and there are more severe forms. And those severe forms you know, are, are evident very early on in life. And some of those are sort of fairly quickly fatal, as you can imagine, if it's starting, you know, you've got a genetic condition that affects the ability of the cells to, to produce energy. Whereas others have different effects. So there's one called Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy. So that's characterized by vision loss. So they can affect specific organs in the body. They can be more kind of systemic. It's, it's a really big range of, of um, conditions, but generally speaking, they're not good. So those more severe cases, I believe that most people don't survive till adulthood. Is that correct? Yeah, with a lot of them, a lot of the ones that, that really affect them very early on, yes, they, they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do so. So really, I mean, this, this is a disease that if you survive to reproduce, you really want to avoid the risk of passing it on to children. And is there currently any prenatal screening for biological parents which could determine the risk of having a child with mitochondrial disease? Well, most likely if somebody's got mitochondrial disease, they'll know about it. So, or maybe they're a carrier, it's something that runs in the family. If, if the mother has some form of mitochondrial disease, so for example, if she has the one that I mentioned earlier, the eye disease, then, uh, you know, the, the, they'll already know about it. But it is possible to to screen for these to have tests for these and maybe if it because it's passed down maternally if your mother had mitochondrial disease but you don't it may be that you're still a carrier so i think it's one of those conditions that people who are likely to be at risk of either having it or passing it on will probably know about it how about Uh, antenatal screening options can they detect mitochondrial disease in a fetus Yes, so you can do screening for this as with you know, a whole host of genetic conditions. You can do chorionic villus sampling, prenatal testing. But again, you know, that then leaves parents with the very difficult decision, depending on the severity of the disease, about whether to terminate a pregnancy or whether to carry to term. So really, you sort of want to avoid that. You'd want to be able to do genetic screening before you get to that stage so that you know, parents don't have to make that, what would be, imagine, a very, very difficult choice. And with that as well, can you even tell what the severity is or does it just detect presence of the disease? Well, I, I would imagine... 
depending on which gene, I mean, there's something like 1300 uh, genes in the mitochondria. So, I mean, I don't know that we've characterized the disease kind of presentation of all of the mutations that affect those genes. So there's, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. So it may be that you can identify, well, yes, there's a mutation in this particular gene. We don't know what that will mean. Or it may be that, you know, certain genes, it's already very well characterized. It's known to be very severe illness. And, you know, in that situation, I guess the decision would probably be more obvious in terms of choosing to terminate. But, you know, there'd be a lot of uncertainty inherent in that. So let's talk about this option of three-person IVF where couples might use donor mitochondrial DNA to replace the biological mother's mitochondrial DNA. What does that process actually entail? So there's two ways that this can happen. The, the, the goal is to essentially remove the biological mother's mitochondria, to take them out of the equation and replace them with mitochondria from a donor who's not affected by mitochondrial disease or who's not at risk of mitochondrial disease. So there's two ways of doing this. One is that you have a donor egg and then you have the biological mother's egg. Both of those eggs are fertilized with the father's sperm. And then when both eggs are fertilized, the nucleus is taken out of the donor egg and replaced with the nucleus from the fertilized egg, the biological mother's fertilized egg. So you're essentially swapping out the nucleus, I guess, from one egg to another. And then what you end up with is an egg that has the nucleus containing the biological mother and father's genetic material contained within a donor egg that has the donor's mitochondria, which is healthy. The other option is, I guess, uh, you actually do it before the fertilization. So you actually swap the nucleus from the biological mother's egg into the cell of donor's egg and then fertilize that. So both of them, you end up in a situation where you have a donor egg, donor mitochondrial DNA, and the nucleus is from the biological mother and father. So, you know, it's it's fiddly. <laughs> we have the technology to do this. It's certainly not something that, you know, you just uh, pop down to your GP for. It's incredibly delicate when you're just sort of moving, you know, nuclei around between eggs and popping these things around. But it, it, is, it is doable. The technology exists to do it and is already being used in places like the UK. But I imagine that that is quite an expensive technology. Is there any word on the government, say, you know, financially subsidising this for consumers at the coalface? Or is it likely that they're only going to fund the research component of it? Well, look, it's such early days for this. So the government's um, put out, so they, they basically had a Senate inquiry, a few, I think a few years ago, um, and that inquiry concluded that the government should uh, take the next step in at least um, exploring the option of introducing this to Australia. So, so far it's only legal in the UK. It's only been legalized in the United Kingdom. Singapore is looking at it, but um, very few countries do this, um, at least in a, you know, in a, it hasn't sort of been approved in a regulatory sense. Yeah, so in 2018, there was an inquiry which recommended that there should be more consultation with the community. And now the government has gone the next step and said, uh, look, we are interested in actually in introducing this. So there's now a further process where there's public consultation that's going on at the moment. And that's open, is, already, is now open and will close on the 15th of March to, to see what the general public thinks about this. The government's not talking about, they haven't kind of gone so far as to say, yes, this is something that would be Medicare subsidised, you know, in the same way that 
perhaps something like IVF might be, but that doesn't mean that it won't be. I think it really what they're talking about at the moment is doing a kind of pilot studies, doing some research, opening up some pilot clinics, but really establishing the regulatory framework that would enable this to be offered to couples in Australia you know, I would hope that for those, you know, those who are uh, who are at risk of this, that it would be something that the government would subsidise, because I imagine it would be prohibitively expensive otherwise. As you just pointed out, the UK was the first country to legalise mitochondrial donation in 2015. As you were saying, that's only for the purposes of preventing genetic diseases. So in Australia, it's currently banned, and that's by laws against human cloning and research using human embryos. Do you know much, Bianca, about why countries are so hesitant to get involved in this technology? You did point out cost as a major barrier, but are there others? Yes, so there's understandably a lot of um, hesitance and concern and caution around any kind of reproductive technologies that involve manipulation of an embryo because whatever changes you make to that, you, you are altering the, you know, the path of development, the path of life, which is not to say that we shouldn't do it. It's just that we have to be extremely cautious about what we do in those very, very early stages because you know, getting it wrong is obviously potentially catastrophic. I, I don't really know, you know, it's a, it's a it's a funny thing. I think there's a lot of, and I'm probably going out a little bit on a limb here, but I think there is a lot of religious influence on policy in this space. And you've only got to look at what's happened in the US um, in terms of any kind of embryonic research that was really mixed a lot under you know, the conservatives and particularly under Trump. And I think we have seen something maybe similar in Australia. I don't really know why there's a kind of regulatory hesitance because really it's it's something that can make a huge difference to people and if it means that we are not having you know children born with these awful diseases or often awful diseases then that to me seems to be a very very good reason you know to explore this but obviously as with anything like this there is that sort of slippery slope argument that you know, you start by fixing this and then, you know, what else are you going to try and fix? So I think that's where a lot of the kind of hesitance comes from. It's just we have to be careful that we don't kind of literally throw the baby out with the bathwater and stop doing any of these technologies because we're concerned about how far they might go. But I think Australia is well positioned. You know, we are such a wealthy country. We do have the resources and the facilities and the scientific expertise to do this and to do it carefully and to do it well. So I would hope that we could be, you know, something of a world leader on this. And another thing to point out with that is that the program that the government has announced this month is just a pilot program. So we're probably actually 10 years away in terms of actually seeing this offered, say, by your everyday IVF providers in Australia. Isn't that right, Bianca? Yes, this is a long way off. This is not something that's going to appear in the next couple of years. It's going to take, uh, and, and rightly so, a long period of observation, of, of assessment, of research before, you know, to make sure that we're not getting this wrong, not being misused, not being abused, um, and that it is actually achieving what it's supposed to achieve, which is to prevent this disease um, in children and in the population. So Bianca, also in the headlines this week, and because you're our resident COVID blogger for the Medical Republic, I was going to ask you about the approval of the Astra vaccine in Australia this week. What are your thoughts on that? 
Look, it's great. I mean, I think the more vaccines we can get approved, the better, obviously, as long as they're safe and effective. And certainly the AstraZeneca, which has also been known as the Oxford vaccine, the indications are that it is effective at preventing severe illness. Still questions around its effectiveness against some strains. So I think there was one of the studies that was done of this vaccine in South Africa suggested that it might be slightly less effective against the South African variant, but the numbers of that were really small. So it's difficult to know whether, you know, if that was kind of, you know, a statistically significant finding. But, you know, the advantage that this vaccine has is that it's a pretty standard viral vector. It carries the gene for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which means it doesn't need to be kept at minus 80 degrees or minus 70 degrees or whatever it is that the Pfizer, BioNTech, the mRNA vaccines need to be kept. So it doesn't have that kind of cold chain issues. So that means it's a lot less likely for there to be kind of issues in terms of getting it out there, the logistics of getting it out there. I think there's the approval, it's obviously it's just individuals 18 years and older at this stage. Um, it's two-dose vaccine. The so It can be given four to 12 weeks apart, but again, based on some clinical trial data, the longer that interval, the better. So at TAGI, the technical advisory group has recommended a 12-week interval between vaccines. So, yeah, so it's, it's been given provisional approval, which means it's basically got two years of approval to be used in Australia. But to kind of extend that approval, it's got to give more data to the TGA on efficacy, on long-term safety, that sort of thing. So, and, and look, there's also questions about whether it will work in those in older people, those aged over 65, because there weren't so many of those in the trials. It looks like it will, because certainly the immunogenicity data showed that they did generate you know, an immune response to the vaccine, but they didn't have enough numbers of older people in the trial to really know whether, you know, how good it was at preventing, preventing illness. And then, of course, there's not really any data on whether it prevents transmission. So if you're vaccinated, but you still get exposed and get infected, can you pass that on to others? And does it prevent asymptomatic infection? So it looks like it'll do its job in terms of hopefully keeping most people out of hospital and certainly out of the morgue. But in terms of whether it'll you know, stop it, stop the, the virus in its tracks, that remains to be seen. And Bianca, I'm sure that you'll be able to keep all of the Medical Republic readers up to date with anything that happens in the vaccine space as the rollout begins in the next couple of weeks by the COVID blog that you author every day. Yes, there's a lot happening on, in the vaccine space. So, I mean, I think GPs are really on the front line of this. And yeah, it's, it's going to be one hell of a ride, but hopefully it's going to really help protect our population and protect people around the world from getting sick and dying from this. So, you know, that's a really great thing to hope for. Bianca, thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the show, you might like to check out the rest of our journalism by visiting our website. That's medicalrepublic.com.au. On the site, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter and make sure you don't miss a minute, including our next episode of The Tea Room.